Let's pray together for a moment. Our Father, we ask for grace now that you would help us to see, not with foggy eyes, but clearly, Jesus as he's presented in this story and in the words of Mark. And having seen him, we pray, O Lord, that you would let him meet us where we are. For some of us, we feel like we're in the middle of a great storm. And there are many cares that threaten to drown us this morning. We pray that we wouldn't have to be forced to push them aside so that we could concentrate on God, but rather see God in and through them. That he's not far away. He's not distant. He's right there in the midst of the worst things that are happening. Help us with eyes of faith to see Christ and all his power and be convinced of all his love for us. This we ask and pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that folks who are skeptical about Christianity will often say is, listen, if Jesus was in fact God, how come he never said so? How come he never claimed to be God? How come if you read Matthew or Mark or see a quotation in Luke or John, you won't find a verse that says, and Jesus said, I am God, worship me. How come you don't find that? For example, a man named Bart Ehrman wrote a book called How Jesus Became God. And his quest was to figure out how this Galilean peasant preacher ascended to become the second person of the Trinity, how almost Jesus became God. I didn't read the book, but I read an interview that he had with NPR, and he said this. This is a quote. He said, what I argue in the book is that during his lifetime, Jesus himself didn't call himself God and didn't consider himself God, and that none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. That none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. Now, as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a believer, there's lots of places you could go in the New Testament or in the gospel accounts in which you could point to to respectfully disagree with Mr. Ehrman. And one of those places you could go to is the passage we're looking at today. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. It's the passage Peggy Sue read for us. You should leave your Bible open there. That's where we're going to be camped out. Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. And in this passage, it's almost like Mark would raise his hand from the first century and say, listen, listen, I had an inkling. I had an inkling of who Jesus was. And in fact, Peter, who told me this story so that I could write these words, he had an inkling as well. And so Mark would say to us, listen to this story of what Jesus did. Now, I want you to hear this. As you look at Mark 4, 35 to 41, you still won't get the sentence. You didn't hear Peggy Sue miss a sentence. You didn't hear Jesus say, I am God. But that's when Mark would push back and say, listen, of course he didn't have to say that because he didn't have to. Did you hear the story? It's almost like this. If I said to you, look, there's someone that is faster than a speeding bullet, stronger than a locomotive that could leap a tall building with a single bound, you would say that I saw who? Now, how did you know that? I didn't say a word about Superman, and you knew that I just saw Superman. You'd say to me, of course, by telling us what he does, we know who he is. And Mark would be saying the same thing. Mark would say, look, if it, if it talks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it swims like a duck, then it's a duck. And Mark is saying, I've been telling you what Jesus does 
so that it would be crystal clear to you who Jesus was. This Jesus of Nazareth came, Marcus told us, and he has healed the sick, and he's cast out demons, and he's forgiven sin. He's forgiven sin. So that his disciples are beginning to figure out, it's going to take some time, but they're putting the pieces together. This Jesus is different. Different than just the other prophets. He's not like Elijah. He's bigger than our heroes like David or Abraham. This Jesus seems to be doing the things that only God can do. And the lights are beginning to go off for them as they begin to ask themselves, who is it exactly that we're around? Who is this man that we're following? Who is this man that we're listening to? In fact, when you get to the end of the passage, the last verse, that's their question. Who then is this? And that's the question that Mark wants you to be asking this morning as well. And moreover, that Mark wants to answer through this story. Who then is this Jesus of Nazareth? If Mark could tell us right now, he'd say this. If you thought that Jesus healing the sick was something, if you thought he was him casting out demons was something, then watch what he does this morning in this story. 4 verses 35, this is how it begins. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Okay, we'll pause for a second. Let's just set the scene. On that day, what day? Well, you have to scan back to the top of chapter 4, verse 1. It's the day he's been telling these stories. If you remember, he came to the shore. All the crowds were there. He got into a boat, rowed out a bit, and began to tell them parables. The parable of the sower and the seed. The parable of the lamp and the, the seed that grows into the mustard seed. He's told all these stories. It's that day. Now evening has come. It's funny, two weeks ago I sort of joked that Jesus told the parables and when he was done he dropped the mic and he sailed away, right? Actually, I wasn't too far off. That's exactly what happens. He finishes telling his parables. Mark even says, just as he was, almost as if to say he didn't even go back onto shore. Mark just says, he finished his parables and just as he was, they took him on the boat and he rowed away to the other side. And it makes sense. He, he says, let's go across to the other side. And if you remember back to Mark chapter 1... When all the people had come to Capernaum looking for Jesus that they might be healed, all the sick people, Jesus said, let us go to the other towns also for I can preach the gospel for that is why I came out. So it makes sense that Jesus, having preached, having taught the parables to them, now says, let's go across to the other side that I may preach there also. Now here's what happens on the way. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So they're on their way, and as they go, they find themselves in the middle of a storm. And not just a storm, a great storm, a, a hurricane breaks out, if you will. They're in the middle of the sea on the way to the other side and all of a sudden the winds are blowing. The waves are crashing. Water is filling and flooding the boat and these disciples find themselves in utter panic. Hear that. They are scared to death, scared for their lives. And you, you have to remember, these are men with good sea legs. 
These aren't novices or amateurs. These are trained sailors. These are professionals. These are veteran sailors. These are men who make their livelihood on the seas. They spend their days and nights in the water. They've been in storms before. So you have to ask yourself, how great was this storm that these expert sailors and fishermen were scared to death, were terrified, were in total panic, scared because their lives were in great danger. And could there be a greater contrast to the frightened, fretful disciples than the serenely sleeping Jesus? Do you see that in the text? While they are panicking, threatened their lives, overwhelmed with fear, verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Right? Now, how was he asleep? In the middle of all that, how on earth was he asleep? The truth is, I have no idea. Right? I do know that Matthew and Mark and Luke all record the story, and they all remember that detail. None of them forgot that when we were in the storm of our lives, the hurricane had hit, Jesus was knocked out at the stern of the boat. He was asleep on the cushion. Now, how was he asleep? I don't know. I once slept through a college fire alarm. Have you ever heard that? It, like the whole campus wakes up. So maybe, maybe Jesus was just a deep sleeper. Or maybe it was we who've preached here a few times, we've sort of joked back and forth that after preaching two services, all we want to do is take a nap. We have no energy for anything else. So imagine if that's two services. Jesus has just spent the whole day ministering as he's done day after day laboring. And so perhaps Jesus is just exhausted from all the ministry. Maybe it's, it's the kind of sleep that, you know, you parents do where you can hear the kids and they're going, we can watch TV, mom's asleep. And then all of a sudden, I'm not asleep, I hear you, that kind of sort of sleeping, not. Maybe Jesus was sort of faking, we, we have no idea. Whatever it is, it's this, it's this striking picture of the humanity of Jesus. Isn't it something to hear that in Psalm 121, it'll speak of God and says, the keeper of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And yet in the incarnation, when this Jesus becomes flesh, he is passed out on that boat. Or maybe it's interesting to note that the parable Jesus says right before he gets into the boat is of a sower who sows seed and so trusts in God to bring about the growth that he goes to sleep. And maybe Jesus is himself the epitome and the embodiment of that very parable. Who else but Jesus could have finished preaching, sowed the seed, and could so trust in his Father to do the work that he would sleep on this boat. Whatever the case, the hurricane hits, Jesus is asleep on his cushion at the stern of the boat, and the disciples are not going to have any of that. Whatever it is, they don't take that well. So verse 38, we read this. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now you can tell by their question that I don't imagine, I don't suspect that they sort of gently walked over to Jesus and sort of nudged him awake and said, Hey, I hate to wake you from your nap, but if you could help, we're in a little bit of bind here, Right? I imagine from the tone of their question that they shook him awake and said, don't you care that we're perishing? Essentially, teacher, it's not even just a question, it's almost an accusation. We're drowning here. Don't you care? We're dying here. Aren't you concerned? Now, let me just show you what happens and then we'll just ask two questions of this passage. Here's what happens after they wake him up. Verse 39. 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? What happens at the end of the story is Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind. He says, Be still, be quiet. It's the language we've seen before. It's the language we'll see again in chapter 5 when he's actually casting out demons. He essentially tells the demons, be quiet. The one sermon that my daughter, 8-year-old Hannah, remembers from this series in Mark so far is when he cast out the demons. Because I stood up in the front and I said, he told the demons, shut up. And she couldn't imagine that dad said, shut up from the pulpit. So so it's the same language. He, He speaks to a hurricane and says, shut up. And it does. I mean, you, you just think of that. Just, just a moment ago, there was a great storm, verse 37. Now, look, verse 39. There's a great calm. Not only do the winds get muzzled and stop, but suddenly the, the sea goes to a great calm. One translator said that could be almost a dead calm. I mean, you can almost picture that from one moment to hurricane, the next, the winds are dead and not even the tide going, but now almost like the sea turns to glass and you could see your reflection in it. And they see this and they ask themselves, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, what I want to do is ask two questions of this passage for us this morning. One, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? And two, what does this passage tell us about ourselves? Two simple questions you could ask of any passage. Let's ask it of this one. What does this passage teach us about Jesus? And two, what does this passage teach us about us? The first one, what do we learn about Jesus? What does Mark want us to learn about Jesus? Do you see what Jesus did in the story? He stands up. He rebukes the wind. He says, peace, be still, quiet. I mean, you can almost picture it's the same thing that a a mom would say to a noisy child. Quiet. A a teacher would say to an unruly student, quiet. And as, as much as a child would shrink back, so the hurricane shrinks at the voice of Jesus. He speaks to a hurricane the way that a mom would to a child. And this hurricane stops. It's quiet. And so the question is, who is this that has this kind of authority? That's the question of the disciples. Who then is this that even the winds and the sea should obey him? Now, if one of Mark's first readers, a Jew, was reading this, they wouldn't be puzzled at all as to who can do that. If you asked a Jew, who can control nature like that? Who can control the elements? Who can control creation? They wouldn't take a long time. They wouldn't be puzzled. They tell you exactly who controls creation. If you asked a Jew, they would say, listen, the one who controls creation is the same one who, in Exodus, by the breath of his nostril, the Red Sea is parted. It's the one in Genesis when there was darkness and the waters hovered over the earth. He could bring calm out of chaos. There's only one who controls creation like that. 
In fact, in the scriptures for a Jew, they would say, look at Psalm 107. Let me point you to this one section. I wonder if this psalm wasn't in Mark's mind as he was writing this story. Listen to these words from Psalm 107 as the people of God recount how God delivers them. Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Look at verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. One of Mark's first readers, as they're reading Mark 4, in light of what they know of Psalm 107, they begin to put the pieces together. Mark is saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and, and swims like a duck, it's a duck. And, and if it's faster than a speeding bullet and stronger than a locomotive and can leap a tall building in a single bound, it's Superman. And if there's a storm and the waves are crashing and the men are reeling and they cry out in their distress and suddenly someone with the voice of him simply is able to make the sea still and hush the waves, then that's God. And Mark is saying, Jesus is doing what in the scriptures only God can do. And so guess who Mark thinks Jesus is? Which is why Mark would have raised his head and said, I, I have an inkling. I do have an inkling of who this Jesus of Nazareth is. Because in his life, he does what only God in the scriptures can do. And Mark is saying, that's because he is God. Mark is saying, do you know why he healed the sick like God can do? Do you know why he cast out the demons like God would be able to do? Do you know why he forgave sin like God does? And do you know why he could control creation like only God can? It's because he was God. You see, the disciples are just beginning to put this together. They're beginning to see the man that we're standing next to is Yahweh in the flesh. That the man from Nazareth, the man born from the womb of Mary, the man of flesh and blood, the man sleeping in the boat with us, when we're in the presence of him, we are in the presence of God. God is with us here. Mark wants you to see who Jesus was. He's God. But Mark also wants you to learn something about yourself. And so that's the second question. What do we learn about ourselves? Now hear me, Samarod. This scene and story is without a doubt about Jesus. He's the main actor. But he does have a supporting cast. The disciples fill that supporting role. And Mark wants you to see Jesus and learn something about him. But then after that, he wants you to see the disciples 
and learn something about yourself through them. Right? They're the supporting cast. And when we get who Jesus is, now we're supposed to turn and go, and what about these disciples? What do we learn about them? And what do we learn about ourselves through them? Here's what I mean. Often when you read the stories of the disciples, there's a slight temptation in you to sort of mock them. When you see them be as dense as they are, as dull as they are, as slow-witted as they are, that they never really get it, they're always putting their foot in their mouth, there's a little temptation to sort of poke fun and laugh. I mean, how could they have not gotten it yet? But here, you don't feel that temptation. You don't feel that temptation to ridicule them because you can very well relate to them. You could picture yourself in the boat, and you could see yourself acting exactly as they acted, doing exactly what they did. I mean, picture yourself for a moment. The storm is brewing. The winds are howling. The waves are crashing. The water is filling up the boat. They are scared to death. And what makes it infinitely worse, hear this, is that when they're dying and drowning at the worst moment of their life, Jesus is sleeping. I mean, it'd be one thing that they're going through this, but if Jesus is who Mark has just labored to tell you he is, then when you're at the worst moment of your life and the waves are crashing and you're reeling, drunk in fear, God seems absent or distant or indifferent or unaware or unconcerned or sleeping That's what makes it even hard. And here's what I want you to hear. This storm brings out of them. Look at what it draws out of their heart. What this storm does is it shakes them and what comes out, they didn't mean for it to come out, what comes out is what's in them and what comes out in that moment is not some kind of heroic faith, but fear and underneath fear and unbelief laced with an accusation. They didn't mean for it to come out, but that storm shook them. And when it did, what was in their heart was drawn out by that storm. And what came out was this unflattering picture that they don't really believe Jesus is for them or cares for them. Do do you hear what came out of their mouth? It's not even just a question. I, I think it's like an accusation. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing Now, I don't mean to read too much into this, but I find what they asked to be so interesting. For example, that they didn't wake him up and say, could you do something about this? Right? Because if you read a few chapters later in Mark 9, there's a man that Jesus meets. He's got a demon-possessed boy. When he meets Jesus, his question is, if you are able, could you heal my boy? And Jesus says, able. If you're able, all things are possible for the one who believes. That man's struggle was whether Jesus could do this thing. But the disciples, they wake him up and their question is, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Almost as if the focus and emphasis of their question is not so much his power in the storm, but his concern for them. Don't you care? We're drowning here. We're dying here. I'm in over my head. I'm sinking here. Are you not concerned that we're perishing? It's this accusation that comes out from their heart. The trial reveals this unflattering thing about the heart, that deep down in their heart, 
They're not convinced that Jesus is who the scriptures say he is, that he's not concerned for them in the moment. Now listen, some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. I mean, this morning, you're in the boat, and the waves are crashing. In fact, some of you have left the faith because of exactly this, that you went through a trial or tragedy and God didn't show up like you expected him to, like you thought he should have. He didn't show up like you cried out and it seemed like God was either absent or indifferent or distant or unaware or even worse, unconcerned. One preacher I heard said, if that is you, I would plead with you to consider coming back to the faith because the very disciples who wrote this gospel account know exactly where you are. They would tell you, we know what it's like to have the waves threaten to swallow us up and to feel like our God was sleeping on us. Listen, here's what I want you to hear. Their fear reveals something. That, that the fear was just the surface. There was something, I want to even say, more sinister underneath their fear. Their fear was just the tip of the iceberg. Do you, do you notice Jesus' question? Why are you afraid? Now that first question, you almost want to go, come on, Jesus. Why are we afraid? But the second question, do you still have no faith? And what Jesus is getting at, what the physician of their soul is getting at is, I see your fear, but there's something lurking underneath your fear. That underneath your fear is unbelief. You still have no faith. Our fears reveal that we don't believe God as much as we think we do. We don't believe he is exactly who the scriptures say he is. If I were to ask you this morning, what are you afraid of? If you would do some work, you know that there's a layer of fear of what you're afraid of. But if you would press down beyond that layer, you'd go, what is it that I'm not believing about God, about who he is, and what the scriptures say he's like? Underneath that fear is unbelief. We don't believe he is who he says he is. We don't believe. We're not as close to him as we imagine we might be. Let, let me give you an example of this. There's a story in the Old Testament that has bowled me over. It's this small section from Deuteronomy 1. Let me just tell you what happens. In Deuteronomy 1, there's this scene where the people of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. 400 years, they had no spears, no swords, no bow and arrow, no army, no strength to save themselves. When they were powerless, God, through his own might, walked them out of the most powerful nation on the planet. They were walked out. God lit up Egypt with plagues. He turned the Nile red, darkened the sun, brought pestilence and, and all the rest. And then he walked them through the Red Sea, parted the sea. They walked out. I mean, just this incredible scene of God's deliverance. And now he's leading them to the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey. This land with all of God's promises. They're at the edge of the promised land. They're at the boundary of it. Just beyond the horizon is all that God's promised for them. Deuteronomy 1. And then God says, go in and take the land. Now, they are scared. 
They're scared because they don't know what's on the other side of that horizon. They don't know what kind of cities await, what kind of men await, what kind of armies await. So God says, go take it. They say, hold on, let's send some spies. So they send some spies. These spies come back. They come back with grapes the size of watermelons. And they come back and they say, listen, the land is every bit as good, just as God said. We'll go in and take it. But some come back and they say, listen, the only problem is their cities are as tall as the skies. Their men are too. They're giants in the land. And then we hear that fear grips Israel. But here's the thing of Deuteronomy 1. Fear is just the surface. It's just the layer. There's a verse in Deuteronomy 1 that just knocked me over. The verse is that they go back to their tents and it says, Then Israel returned to their tents and they murmured in their tents, Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of Egypt that he might hand us to the Amorites. Do you get that? There's fear, but what they murmured in their tents is because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of Egypt. Now you think of this. The Exodus story is in the Old Testament what the cross of Jesus is in the New Testament. Meaning there is no greater example of the deliverance and salvation and love and rescue of God than the Exodus. And yet their hearts had somehow gotten so knotted and twisted that the supreme demonstration of God's love and care became for them an evidence that God was out to get them. That God was against them. Evidence for them that God hated them. I mean, you think, what could happen in the heart to get that so knotted and twisted that they would have interpreted the entire Exodus story as evidence that God was just setting them up? I mean, you think of that. Because the way they saw it was, all of this was a one big long con. I mean, and it's almost like God didn't spare any of the special effects to set us up. He turned the water blood and darkened the sky and parted the sea all to bring us out for this very moment so that he could finally hand us over to our enemies and destroy us. Do you hear what's happening? Underneath that fear is this sinister unbelief. Now listen, I would be tempted to look down at Israel. I would be tempted to look down at the disciples because it's the same thing. We're perishing here. Don't you care? I'd be tempted to look down at them if it were not that I was exactly like them. Hear me. Not hypothetically. Exactly like them. I get Deuteronomy 1. Let me give you an example. I've, I've shared this story with some. Let me, let me tell you. Seven, eight years ago is when we moved here to church plant. We had a small team of folks who were here at the time. Other than that, we were coming to a city we had never lived in. We didn't know anyone. I had no salary. We had no insurance. We were supposed to just come to this place and see about building a church. So we came. The long story short would be, in the first year itself, we connected with the church that owned this property. If you don't know the story, the long story short would be, there was a church called St. Mark's Church, 134 years old. They had this eight acres of land, these three buildings, this $2 million property they gave to us for free. I'm a first-year church planter, right? That is not bad for the resume of a first-year church planter, right? I come to this city. I have no job, no salary, no income, no people. We come. We move in. In our first year, we got an eight-acre property, $2 million for free, 
Now, could there be greater evidence of the care, provision, kindness of God or that God was with us? Can I tell you what was going on in my heart? At that time, there was a well-known preacher who was talking about church planting, and there's one line he would say all the time. He would say, you could give the wrong guy nothing, and he'll make it work. You, you could give the right guy nothing, he'll make it work. You could give the wrong guy a million bucks, he'll mess it up. And I was convinced that God had gone through all that to set me up as an example of the wrong guy. I kid you not, I'm leading through it, I'm writing emails as best as I can, encouraging this team, and all the while there is in my heart this thought, God, this is one giant long con. You didn't spare any of the special effects. I mean, to think you, you went through two votes and a unanimous decision, you gave us a $2 million property all just to prove that I was the wrong guy. I could have said with Israel, because the Lord hated me, he gave me St. Mark's Church and its property. I know what it's like to be these disciples. I know what it's like to have this sinister unbelief lurking underneath your fear. That underneath my fear is this, I don't believe. I, I was in this room, I remember. I was setting up some chairs, and I remember hearing this sermon by a preacher named Matt Chandler. It was just on in the background. I didn't even think about it. And while I'm doing something, he, he had this one sentence. He said, some of you just need to honestly admit to the Holy Spirit, I don't trust you. I don't believe that you're out for my good. If I'm honest, I think you're setting me up to mess with me. I don't think that you're going to come through. And I have no idea how to trust you. Some of you just need to honestly admit that underneath your worst fears is a whole lot of unbelief. Now, if you can hear that and relate with that, what do you do when you find that there's unbelief in your heart? What do you do when, I, I believe, but there's this little atheist in my heart. He may not even have the whole terrain, but there's this little atheist in my heart. What do I do with that little atheist? Where I, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. What do you do with the little atheist in your heart? Well, let me ask you, what do you do with the atheist who's on your block? What do you do with the unbeliever who's your friend? You evangelize him. You preach the gospel to him, the good news of Jesus Christ, and you call him to repent of his unbelief and put his faith in Christ. Well, that's what I do with my heart, too. I preach the gospel to my unbelieving heart, and I call the little atheist to repent of his unbelief and trust again in Christ. That's what you should do. If you find right now underneath your fear is unbelief, repent. Preach the gospel to your heart and believe. I've told this illustration that this pastor named Tim Keller says. He says it's, it's like if you have a soda machine and you put in a quarter. You expect you put in the quarter and the soda to come out. But what happens if the, so, the quarter goes in and it gets stuck? Then what do you do? You know what you do. You bang the side of the machine. You bang the side of the machine until the quarter drops and the soda comes out. And he says, in the same way, for many of us, the gospel comes and it gets stuck right here. Right here, I know that God is powerful. And right here, I know that God is loving. But it gets stuck there. So what do I do? I have to bang the side of my head until that gospel drops to my heart and I actually believe it. So this morning, 
Here's what I want to do. I want to bang the side of your head until this gospel drops and you believe. And you believe. Here's the one thing I want you to believe and then I'll be done. The good news is that you don't have to be afraid. Even when there's something to be afraid of. Because in the storm, a powerful God is with you and a loving God is for you. You don't have to be afraid, even when there's something to be afraid of. Because in your storm, a powerful God is with you and a loving God is for you. Let me just show you that and then we'll be done. Do you notice his power? And then I'll show you his love as well. Do you notice his power? Look at verse 41. Jesus stands up, he rebukes the winds and the waves, it dies down, he asks them a question, verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Did you catch that? What that's saying is the disciples were afraid when they were in the storm and then once the storm was calm, they were terrified. Did you get that? They were in the storm and they were afraid. And now when the storm's done, they're terrified. Right? Verse 37, there's a great storm. Verse 39, there's a great calm. Verse 41, now there's a great fear. Why? Because now they suddenly became more afraid of the one in the boat who stilled the storm than the storm that was outside the boat. Suddenly they became more afraid of the power of the one sitting in the boat with them than the power of the, the storm outside of them. Now they realized that storm was powerful and uncontrollable, but the one sitting in the boat is even more powerful and hear this, even more uncontrollable. Think of that. Sitting in the boat was the Almighty who led us into this storm. There's no controlling Him. There's, there's no telling what he'll do, what he'll allow, what he'll bring into our lives. He led us into the storm. If we thought the storm was uncontrollable, the one in the boat is even more so. They're terrified. And, and hear that. The, the God we worship is an uncontrollable God. He doesn't fit where you want him to fit. He doesn't do what you expect him to do. He doesn't map out your life the way you expect him to. He never keeps your rules. He does, the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Suddenly you begin to realize the power of the one we are with is greater than the power of anything outside of us. It's like this line that preachers often quote. There's this story called the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis tells this story, the hero of the story is this great lion, Aslan. These two little kids are meeting this lion, and their question is, is he safe? And the response is, safe? Of course he's not safe. Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But then the response is, but he is good. You see, it would be the most terrifying thing in the world to know that you are at the mercy of an all-powerful God who does whatever he pleases if you did not also believe, and he's good. And what he does with that power is use it in every way for your good. What he does with that power is channel it in every way so that all things work together for the good of those who are his. That's what he does with his power. 
And in this story, you see not only is the one in the boat all-powerful, that in the storm an all-powerful God is with you, but also that in the storm an all-loving God is for you. One preacher named Sinclair Ferguson, he said, the question the disciples asked Jesus is actually probably the cruelest question they could have asked at all. Did you catch that? Don't miss that. That what the disciples ask is possibly the cruelest question to ask Jesus. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, if they only knew who they were asking, if they only knew the full story of what he would do to ask him, do you not care about us? Do you not care? If they only knew when the story of Mark is done, how he would show his care for them. In fact, let me just say this. When one of the first readers of this account read this, if you were a Jewish person and you're reading the story, there's almost an impulse that would go, wait, I've seen this movie before. If you were a Jewish reading, reading Mark's account, you would almost jump out of your seat and say, I, I know this story. Because in the Old Testament, there was a story that Mark writes this almost line for line exactly like that other story. Have you ever heard the story of Jonah? The story of Jonah is there's this prophet, this godly man, and he's sleeping in a boat. And a great storm breaks out. And all the sailors are mortified and terrified. And they wake the prophet up and they go, how could you sleep? Sound familiar? And then there's a great calm and the sailors are even more terrified after than before. Sound familiar? In fact, Jesus himself in one of the Gospels would say, I'm like Jonah, except I'm a greater Jonah. Greater how? Jonah was in that boat, in that storm, as judgment from God because of his sin. But the greater Jonah would come and be under the judgment of God for our sin, not his own. And this storm was just a preview of what it would look like for Jesus to drown under the judgment of God. For Jesus to, to be put under the wrath and fury that this storm was nothing compared to the ultimate storm that threatens to sink you and me of our sin and condemnation and damnation and hell. And Jesus would be the one. In the story of Jonah, there's no calm until the prophet is thrown over and drowns. But with the greater Jonah, there will be no calming of God's judgment, no stilling of his wrath, until he who had no sin is hurled into our sin, so much so that he drowns in it. Your sin and my sin fill his lungs until he suffocates and can breathe no more. This is the wrath of God under which Jesus would drown for us. And when we know that whole story, it's one thing for the disciples to ask Jesus in the boat, don't you care? But we would be looking at Jesus on the cross and we'd be saying to him, do you not care that we're perishing? I'm drowning and dying here. I'm in the worst thing of my life. Do you not care? And it's almost like Jesus would have to scrape his back against the cross, lift up to catch a breath and say, what more could I do to show you that I do care? In fact, I will perish so that you might not. I will drown so that you might not. And if he was faithful to save us from that worst storm, then Seven Mile Road, can we not trust him to help us in whatever storm we're in right now? Here's the gospel, the good news that I want to bang in the side of your head. 
You don't have to be afraid. Even when there's something to be afraid of. Because in your storm, a powerful God is with you. And a loving God is for you. Let's pray together.